I'm Dr. Deepak Chopra, and I have a, the distinct pleasure and honor and privilege to be introducing this extraordinary book by Sadhviji, Sadhvi Bhagwati Saraswati, as she's known throughout the world. I have known Sadhviji for a long time, and we have many mutual friends. So actually, I, I do know her story, but I didn't know it in the detail. I do know her story, but I had no idea of the intricacies of that story and all the details and the nuances of her and all the nuances of her spiritual journey. So, Sadhviji, it's great to have you here. Ah. I just want to read um, uh, my quote on Sadhviji's book. Sadhvi Bhagwati Saraswati is a great teacher of spirituality and consciousness. Her inspiring wisdom illuminates the path to healing, happiness, and inner peace. And then she's got extraordinary endorsements from, from just about everybody that I know, including uh, the Reverend uh, Ayan La Vansanta, who is the executive producer of a very popular show. No, I think I may have a, another microphone that I'm using, so I'll take it off. You know, maybe that will solve the problem. Huh? Yeah, just put it in here, but close it, otherwise, uh, yeah, close it, otherwise it won't work. Okay, that's one of these ear pods. So now I think this is going to work. I'll start all over again. <laughs> I'm Dr. Deepak Chopra, and it's my great privilege, honor, delight to introduce this extraordinary book by Sadhvi Bhagwati Saraswati. The book is called Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. I've known Sadhviji for a long time, and uh, I know her story as well. But going through this book actually was a very emotional experience because it uh, shows uh, amazing courage, tenacity, and almost, I would say, a sacred intent from someone who had a traumatic life and took the trauma all the way to bring enlightenment to the world. Uh, there's nothing more... Uh, precious or sacred uh, as a seva. I call this love in action. I call this love in action. So, Sadhviji, uh, never mind the, the audio disturbances we are having, despite taking all these precautions, but people, it happens are, in life. people are there, and we surrender to the wisdom of uncertainty. Ishwar Pranidhana as the fifth... Uh, Niyama says. So looking at you today, I was reading your book and I'm making some notes. Looking at you today, I see a woman who's peaceful, joyful, and deeply spiritually connected. But I know from your story... Can we correct this somehow? Uh, maybe I can speak softly. But I know from your story that you were not always like this. How did this transformation happen? I know the whole beautiful story is in your memo memoir, 
but please give us a taste of this extraordinary transformation you've experienced because the whole world would benefit. First of all, Deepakji, it's such, such a great honor and such a blessing to be with you this evening and to have this opportunity to speak about my journey. And we're so blessed also by the presence of His Holiness, Puja Swami, Chidanand, Saraswatiji, my divine guru. We are also so blessed to have the beautiful, beautiful presence and respected presence of globally renowned actor Anupam Kherji and all of our, our family from so many different walks of life joining us here today, both in person as well as online. So you're right. My my journey was not, not always one in which I felt peaceful, joyful, spiritually connected. I grew up in a, a world of privilege, a world of opportunity. Grew up quite literally in Hollywood. And had all of the, all of the things that in the West were told one needs in order to be happy. The financial comfort, access to everything that one wants, the best education. I graduated from Stanford University. I was in the middle of doing a PhD, as you know. And on the outside looking in, you would have said, this woman has everything, or this girl, as the case might have been, at different stages of my life. And yet, two things were true. Number one, due to the trauma that I had experienced, I really was deeply suffering inside. No matter what I had outside, didn't help me let go or heal from or move forward from the pain, the suffering, and the way that that manifested in my life through addiction, through eating disorder, through so many different, different ways that we, we try to stop up the pain. But of course, we know it doesn't work. But aside from that as well, because as I, as I looked around me as I was growing up, friends and everyone I knew, we had everything that we're told we need to be happy. Living amidst all of the glamour, all of the glitterati, all of the opportunity, all of everything. And yet that real happiness, that real peace, that real meaning in life, that real connection, it wasn't there. And at 25, I went to India, as you know, with a backpack on what I thought was a very short trip, a 
few months a quarter off of my PhD program, and that I had even agreed to go only because I loved the food. 25 years later, this was 1996, so 25 years later, I've dedicated my life to being there. I've lived there for 25 years. And yet, as I look back, I realize I only came because I had traveled so much in Europe and around America, and it was so difficult to actually get pure vegetarian food, to get vegetable soup that didn't have a chicken stock, to get a salad where the dressing didn't have eggs or fish or something. And so I said, all right, yes, I'll come to India. There's so many stories, you know, of having arrived in India and all of the beautiful serendipities, the beautiful way that grace takes you and touches you, guides you along into what city to go to, into which hotel to stay in, in which city, into where to stand on the banks of Mother Ganga, into all of that. And I stood having arrived in Rishikesh, I stood on the banks of Mother Ganga, hot, tired, just thinking I was coming to put my feet in the water. And I had this extraordinary experience of oneness, of divine connection, of knowing the presence of the divine, and knowing that I was one with the divine, and knowing that no matter what had happened to me, no matter what I had experienced, no matter how much I felt not enough, unworthy, that here I was, actually in absolute expansion, infinite experience, one with the divine. And that was when I realized that life is not as Pooja Swamiji reminds us about filling yourself, but actually about recognizing the fullness of yourself. And that was when I knew this is where I need to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. And over the next seven, ten days, there were these series of experiences of serendipity, but really that's just grace flowing through in life in which I literally heard a voice telling me as I was walking through Parmarth Nikitan Ashram, the ashram I now live, hearing a voice say, you must stay here. I then literally got my feet glued to the ground of the ashram. I was trying to walk out and literally my feet were glued to the ground. I could not pick them up. I thought I had stepped in some you know, Indian version of crazy glue or something. And it wasn't until I realized, ah, I'm not actually supposed to walk out, I'm supposed to stay, that then suddenly my, my feet allowed me to move. And so that transformation was one of realizing I'm not my story. And as I got touched and taught by Indian culture, by the Vedas, by the science of yoga, by the spiritual tradition, I found 
I'm not my body. I'm not its shape or its size or its history or what's happened to it. I'm not the chemical and electrical patterns of behavior in our brain we call emotions, but actually that I was one with the divine, that I was love, I was truth, I was consciousness. And that was the, the incredible soil in which the healing and the transformation and the expansion and the joy and all of that has taken place over the last 25 years. And of course, I've skipped a lot of parts, but yeah. <laughs> they're all well, in the book. They're all in the book. So I have a question. Check. So I do have a question. Can you hear me in the back? You gotta press this button when you speak. Yeah. Okay. Gotta press this and keep it a bit away. Yeah. Press, press, press and hold on. Press and hold on. Can you hear me now? Check, 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 check. It was on before. Check, check. We'll extend this. <laughs> okay, just try it now. Okay, Sadhviji, I have a question. You were traumatized. I know the details. Uh, sexually abused. Um, these days, you know, when we seek justice, there's the idea of revenge or, you know, justice means yes. getting even. I found that you found a place of forgiveness in your heart. Um, how did you do that? Hmm. Yeah, forgiveness. And, you know, it's so interesting because you're right. Usually revenge, vengeance is the first thing that we, that we want. When someone's harmed us deeply or harmed a loved one or harmed Mother Earth, first thing we want is revenge. It was not easy. I've learned over the years the distinction between simple and easy. It was simple. It wasn't easy. And it began, actually, I had been in India. I had been in Rishikesh maybe four or five days. And Puja Swamiji would give daily darshan where people would come in to have blessings and ask questions. And I asked him one day, the questions were over, and he looked at me and said yes. And I asked him a question about fear. And he said, you fear because you don't trust. And I hadn't up until that point told him my story. I was in such a state of ecstasy that the last thing on my mind was how I was suffering. I was in just 
constant joy and bliss. I just kept saying, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. So I wasn't at that point moving through the world with that suffering in me. But I knew that I struggled with fear a lot, with stress a lot. So little fear, big fear. I didn't trust the universe. I didn't trust myself. And I asked him, and he said, you fear because you don't trust. And I told him my story, why I don't trust. Here's what's happened. Here's how I've been abused. Here's how I've been abandoned. Here's, here's my, my story. And it was a story that up until that point had always gotten me a lot of sympathy. It was a good story. It was something that people had always said, oh, ho, ho, you poor thing. You know, and it was a story that enabled me to stay stuck. Whether stuck in addiction, whether stuck in depression, whether stuck in ways of moving through the world. But it was a story that made no one say to me, how are you going to step up to the plate of your life? Because the sheer fact that I was managing to excel in school, that I was managing to get this degree, that I was managing to do all of this, that I was managing my life, seemed impressive enough. But Pooja Swamiji looks at me and he says, are you going to take that to the grave with you? And I was like, no. And he said, so are you going to give it up on your deathbed? And I said, no. I was only 25, remember. And he said, well, how about a week before you die? How about a month before you die? And I'm thinking, is he trying to tell me something? Am I, am I like about to die? And I said, I said, no. I, I'm, in, I'm in therapy. I'm undergoing process. You know, I, eventually, eventually I will heal. No, I don't want to take this to the grave or my deathbed. And he looks at me and he says, you're waiting for someone to draw the line. No one will do it. No one is going to come in and draw the line and say, you can be done. You can be free. He said, it's up to you. You can carry it to your grave or you can give it up tonight. Tonight? He said, yeah, we have this beautiful ceremony called the Arati ceremony, a lighting ceremony on the banks of the river. And after the ceremony, he said, I want you to take part in the ceremony. And then after the ceremony, I want you to go into the river. And I want you to hold water from Ganga in your hands and offer your pain, your anger, into that water and then into Ganga. Now, I was, I was an academic. I was a scientist. And I was getting my PhD in psychology. So, in my mind, the idea that a river was going to be the answer to what ailed me, it was inconceivable. And yet, I said, okay, these words have been spoken. 
by this great being. Okay, I know it's not going to work. When I was sure it wasn't going to work. I was sure there was no way it was going to work. But I thought it's been spoken by this great being. The least you can do is be sincere about it. You have no idea why you came to India. I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area where we had great vegetarian food on my corner, Indian vegetarian food. There was no way to, no reason to travel around the world to get Indian vegetarian food. I said, so I don't know why I've come. Maybe, maybe it was to hear these words. Who knows? So I took a vow simply that I would do it sincerely. Again, I knew it wasn't going to work but just that at least I would be sincere and respectful to the instruction given by this great being. And I stood in that water, and I cried, and I pulled up pain, and I cried, and I stood there until I literally could say, I forgive you and mean it. And until all of the pain that I could find in anywhere in me had been pulled up and offered into this water. I have no idea how long I stood there. But I finally offered it. And what I realized is, and have learned over all of these years is, we don't forgive, and this is key, we don't forgive because what the other person did was right. And so that yearning for vengeance says what you did was wrong. And there is nothing wrong with that. That's what we've got this great law of karma for. That's actually going to make sure that apple seeds become apple trees and that seeds of abuse and injustice and harm, as you know even better than I do from your wisdom of the teachings and the truths and the scriptures, those, those seeds blossom into trees that give fruit in people's lives. The universe doesn't need us to be the secretary keeping track of who's done what. God, God didn't say, you know, hey, do me a favor. Could you keep track of who's been good and who's been bad? We don't need to do that. We forgive not because what they did was okay but we forgive because we deserve to be free. And to recognize what was done to me was wrong. And I deserve to be free. And that those two are not mutually exclusive. What was done was wrong. And I am a divine being. I am soul, I am spirit, I'm consciousness, I'm love, I'm truth, I'm one with God, and I deserve to be free. And I don't need to hold on to the pain and the anger in order to make sure that the law of karma works. And over the years, over the years, I've, I've adapted this, this way of living and, and being, which is as soon as something happens, whatever it may be, little, big, to just forgive. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't work to right wrongs. It doesn't mean that we don't work for justice and human rights and 
feeding people who are hungry and bringing clean water. But it means that we don't lock ourselves up in jail because someone else has done wrong. Well, several important points come here. One is that a sacred ritual can move you from your conditioned mind to your true self. And your true self doesn't have any resentments or grievances. I think it was Nelson Mandela said um, something like having a resentment against somebody who's wronged you is drinking poison and hoping it will kill the enemy. <laughs> it doesn't do that. But a deeper point here, you've, which you really um, very eloquently uh, made, is that you don't forgive because you think the other person deserves forgiveness. You forgive because you deserve peace and freedom. And this is one of the beauties of sacred rituals, like Swamiji told you, Puja Swamiji, take all that, localize it, and release it, yes. and you will be healed instead of maybe 30 years of psychotherapy. Because <laughs> I don't think there are any mental solutions created by the mind problem. The mind creates the problems, and then the spirit is that which heals. So it's very beautiful that you shared that. As I was looking also uh, at your history, it became obvious to me that you are now a committed uh, um, sad sadhvi, <laughs> the feminine divine. And that as a consequence of that, you have taken vows of monastic renunciation. And you did that 20 years ago. First of all, what inspired you to do that? And uh, given that you came from a completely different environment, completely different ecosystem, uh, where that is almost considered, wow, at a young age, what is she doing? So can you... Uh, Elaborate. Um, uh, first of all, is this kind of renunciation really crucial for spiritual growth? And did you have challenges? Mm. So first of all, renunciation on this level, the level of the monastic renunciation, so the, the orange robes, are the symbol of, just for all of our beautiful family who aren't aware of, of that, the, the orange robes are the symbol of the monastic renunciation. And so it's, it's literally like the equivalent of being a monk or a nun. You take vows of celibacy, vows of simplicity. And first of all, no, it is not necessary at all. Our scriptures are filled with, in fact, if you look at the rishis and the sages and the yogis in our scriptures, very, very few of them are actually renunciants. The vast majority of them are what we would call householders, people living in the world, married people with families. 
So absolutely it is not necessary. The only thing that's necessary to renounce for a spiritually connected life is your attachment to that which keeps you from living a spiritually connected life. So whether it's the games of the mind, the ego of the mind, whether it's your grudges, your pain of the past, that holds us back much more so than a house or a job. In, in the scriptures, it says so beautifully, man eva manushyanam karanam bandha mokshayo. And it means the mind is the key. The mind is the answer to your liberation or your bondage. So it's not about the clothes you wear. It's not about whether you live in a cave or you live in a mansion or you live in an ashram or you live in a family. As long as you cut ties with that in the mind that binds us, all of our limiting beliefs, all of our anger, all of the grudges, all of the ego. So you said the mind doesn't give solutions, it just gives the problems. That's the only renunciation necessary. However, for some of us, and I am included in that, it's our dharma, our unique dharma, our purpose in life to actually be monastics. There are people who just in fulfilling their life purpose, just like some people are meant to be doctors and some people are meant to be musicians and artists and leaders of all kinds. So some of us are meant to be monastic renunciants, not because you have to be for spiritual connection, but just because that's our, our dharma. And I realized for me, even though if you had asked me, you know, a week before arriving in Rishikesh or even 24 hours before arriving in Rishikesh, you know, what do you think about the idea of being a renunciant? I would have said, what are you, crazy? I was never someone who practiced any kind of austerities. I was never someone who saw value in any kind of abstinence from anything at all. But what happened to me was, after I had that incredibly powerful experience on the banks of Ganga, that experience of opening and healing, I knew this is where I meant to live. And once I started living in the ashram, serving, what I found was very amazing. All of my desires, anything ranging you know, from bagels to sex and anything in between, Literally, anything that had been part of my former life, just, it was gone. Gunga took it. Literally. Gunga took it. And, and I didn't even mean to offer it. Like, I was just giving her my anger. I didn't, I didn't mean, by the way, take how much I love bagels and take my interest in sex. And I didn't mean it. But it, it happened. And so it wasn't for me actually a process of saying, okay, now I'm going to renounce. The renunciation had happened automatically. It felt like, it felt like the universe had come through with a dust buster 
or you know, like a vacuum cleaner with one of those really narrow sort of attachments into the corners and nooks and crannies and had just come through me and had kind of sucked out of me any attachment to, desire for, anything that was in the life of living. In the book, of course, as you know, there are moments where that, that wavered. There were moments where there were desires, where they did arise. And the extraordinary and exquisite practice of meditation, of yoga, of self-awareness actually made me realize how much more I had been offered by the universe. I think about it like if you're walking down the beach and you collect, you know, pretty rocks or seashells because they're shiny and pretty and you think they're really nice and you're holding on to them. And then at the end of the beach, you see a guy with a bucket full of diamonds. You don't have to convince yourself to let go of the rocks and the seashells. Intuitively, you understand these diamonds are of far more value. And you drop what your hands are full of. And for me, that's really what the renunciation has been, is a letting go of that which no longer held me in any way once I, I experienced this life that I was given. So like you, Sadhviji, I have been a practitioner of yoga and meditation for many, many years as we explored the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment as enunciated by Patanjali and others, yeah. Yama, Niyama, uh, Yogasana, Pranayam, uh, Pratyahara, Dharna, Dhyan, Samadhi. One of the things I realized over the years, you know, because everybody says you should not identify with the body or the mind. And I'd like your take on this because uh, the more I've thought about this, the more I realized that the body is not a thing. It's an activity in consciousness. And it's a perceptual activity in consciousness. You start... Um, your journey of life as a fertilized egg, then you're a zygote, then an embryo, then uh, a baby, and then a toddler, and you know, teenager, young man, a woman, and then you get old and infirm, and then it's over. And all the time you're thinking, I have a body. So which body are we talking about? You know, if we say I have a body, which one? Yes. Uh, there is no such thing. It's it's a perceptual experience. And what yoga has given me, especially meditation has given me, is this ability to observe my perceptual activity, whether it's a sensation or a perception or the experience of the body or the mind or the ego or uh, emotions, that I actually, being an observer of this perceptual activity, which is modification of I anyway, I'm intrinsically free of body, mind, you know, what we call buddhi, ankar, yes. chitta, you know, the conditioned mind, whether it's our intellect or our emotions or our thoughts or our perceptions of the body. They're fluctuations, they're vrittis. Yes. 
And I am actually intrinsically free of those vrittis. That realization is amazingly freeing. What is your experience mm. with meditation and yoga? Beautiful. And the, you know, you mentioned you've been a practitioner of yoga and meditation for many years, but the way that your practice has actually rippled out and touched so many people and has brought yoga to so many people is such, such an amazing, amazing blessing. And so as you share this, I, I think about not just the extraordinary experience and awareness that you've had, but how many millions of people's lives are impacted by that and how many millions of people change how they think about themselves based on that. And yes, for me, yoga has become my life. But not just the yoga asanas. As you shared, we've got the eight limbs of yoga beginning with how we move in the world with ourselves, with others, moving up through the body, through the breath, through the awareness, finally into this state of samadhi, this state of oneness, of union. We also have, in the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna speaks about the three streams of yoga. Bhakti yoga, the yoga of love, and jnana yoga, the yoga of wisdom, and karma yoga, the yoga of action. So, yoga, meaning union, oneness, it becomes a way of living. And for me, it really has become my whole life. And so whether it's a practice of yogasanas on a mat, whether it's a practice of yam and niyam in my daily activities, whether it's the practices of awareness and attention that bring you up into meditation and samadhi, or whether it's the practice of, and the experience of rather, I don't know how one would practice it, but the experience of bhakti yoga, of loving God. And sometimes it's loving God as God. Sometimes it's loving God as this tree that I'm hugging. Sometimes it's loving God as the baby in my arms or the sunset or the mountain range. And remembering the importance of that wisdom, of real, real wisdom. And so, and this is, of course, the great blessing of having a guru in the body who's there to constantly be able to bring you back into wisdom. Because otherwise, the, the ego kind of takes you way off track. And being able to bring you back into that jnana yoga, that experience of wisdom of truth. And then as dedicated and avowed karma yogis, people who are you know, rooted in service, 
it's, it's kind of every minute and every moment of, okay, how can this moment, whatever it is, whether it's building a school, whether it's providing education and training for women, whether it's healthcare, whether it's cleaning water, whether it's planting trees, whether it's teaching meditation, whether it is having this amazingly blessed opportunity to be here with you, whatever it may be, how can that be action, karma, that is rooted in union, yoga? And how can that action lead to greater yoga, both in my own awareness as well as in those who are being impacted by that action. So it's become really my whole, my whole life. And I just wanted to also speak to the, that beautiful moment that you spoke about of watching the physical body and recognizing it isn't you and whether it's the arm that's hurting or whether it's a chemical and electrical activity in the brain, but being able to witness it, to just notice it like a bird flying, flying in the sky. And how that, how that happens just by the functioning of the mind, how it's all in that constant state, as you say, of change, and yet how it actually isn't, isn't real. One of my favorite scientific ways of thinking about this is think about people who have had a limb amputated. And as a, as a medical doctor, you know how, what huge percentage of those people experience what we call phantom pain, right? So like half the people approximately who get a limb amputated have pain in a limb that no longer exists. So for me, that was this great moment of, oh my God, it's all in the mind. How can you actually have pain in something that doesn't exist? Meaning it's all the games of the mind. And so whether it's pain in your arm or pain in your neck or pain in your rear end, both either literally or metaphorically, it's all in the mind. So again, for those of you who are paying attention, if you close your eyes right now, um, you don't have to do it right now, but I if you right. just... Uh, children? Uh, no. <laughs> so if you, are, if you close your eyes right now, you'll become aware. The answer is no. Who has any children? Me or Sadhviji? Me. Yeah. I, I do not have any biological children. I have one adopted daughter and a whole host of children who, through our services, we have adopted in a variety of capacities. Yes. The none, none from my physical womb. Yes, exactly. Many from my heart. That's it. To uh, 
continue. Thank you, Sadiji. To continue, if, if anyone closes their eyes, you'll become aware in a second that you are speaking to yourself. Okay, and you're recalling stories. And uh, if the story is pleasant, you feel a nice sensation somewhere in your body. If the story, your interpretation is unpleasant, you feel a unpleasant sensation in the body. So your physical body is actually uh, what uh, many wisdom traditions, including the Buddhists and the Vedantas say, this is the karmic body. This is the pain and pleasure body that is being reflected at this moment as what we call karma. It's the story, pain and pleasure. And pain and pleasure are very similar sensations. It's the interpretation that uh, makes the difference whether you feel pain or pleasure. They're the same sensation. In VR, for example, if you put somebody in a very cold environment, um, but you show fire, they interpret that as hot. If you put them in a very hot environment, but you show snow, because the same sensation, but a different experience. This is the karmic body, and the earth in these traditions is karma bhumi. We are here to learn from our karma, our past actions, and our interaction with other people who also have their karma, because karma is entangled, we are here to learn from every experience that we have, good or bad. And when we let go of that story and say, it's a story, it happened, it's not there anymore, and you start to witness that, and you identify with the witness rather than the changing pain and pleasure experience, there's suddenly a release a sudden release, and you go from this karmic body to the experience of Buddhists sometimes call this the rainbow body, but actually it's the even more primordial to this is what we call the bliss body. Ananda Shakti arises from there, and that is the healing that you get. The reason I'm, I'm talking about this right now, Sadhviji, is... Um, and you forgave your biological father for the abuse and abandonment. And this was a key to your awakening and freedom. So many people struggle deeply with not being able to forgive. We talked about that. And you made some very good points. But one of the other things I think we need to recognize is that all of us, it doesn't matter, including your father, in a way they're doing their best from the state of awareness or consciousness they're in. So everybody is doing their best from their state of awareness. And just knowing that, you know, we've all done things from a restricted state of awareness as we evolve from childhood to teenagers to young adults. So once you recognize that everyone is doing their best, then there are certain ways to resolve this, which you did. You ask for forgiveness, you forgive at the same time, you even treat your so-called abuser with respect, you understand that they're emotionally where they are at this moment, 
you refrain from belligerence, you try to understand their values, and then it becomes a process for growth for both you and the perpetrator. Was that your experience with your father? How did you resolve this? Because this is a very intimate experience with the biological father, and it's not easy to resolve. So, the resolution happened mostly within me. In understanding what you've just explained so beautifully, is how everyone is doing their best with, as I think about it sometimes, the toolbox they've been given. And if you come upon a nail in the wall that's sticking out of the wall and you open your toolbox and you don't have a hammer but you've got a spoon, you're going to use the spoon and you're going to bang it into the nail and you're not going to do a very good job. But you didn't have a hammer in your toolbox. And in the same way, I came to understand that people who harm us are doing that because that's all they have, that they're actually just sharing with the world what they have. Like an air conditioner shares cold air, and a heater shares hot air, and a light shares light, a microphone shares sound. That's what they've got. What he had was pain, confusion, anger. He had been severely abused in his childhood. He had never dealt with it. So when I let go, it enabled, well, it enabled me to heal and live and move on and find joy and peace and all of that. But I'm hoping, he has since passed away, but I, I pray that he experienced some level of peace. Whenever I met him, and I did, I did meet him toward the latter years of my life, he came back into my life, and I tried as much as possible to meet him with non-belligerence, with respect, not for his actions, but for the troubled, haunted being, and mostly just in peace and in love. Now, he said to me, the very first time that I saw him after having not seen him first for 10 years and then again another 10, 15 years, his first words were, if you're looking for apologies or repentance, you're looking in the wrong place. So up until his passing, he had absolutely no admitted experience of wrongdoing, of pain, of an empty toolbox, or anything like that. But in a lot of conversations with Pooja Swamiji, I realized he doesn't need to realize what he's done. He doesn't need to apologize. That's an irrelevancy. That's for him, for his own peace, for his own karmic journey. He has to have awareness, but not for mine. 
And so whenever it's right that it's going to come to him, it will come. But what's most important for me was to be able to meet him. And then when he passed away, to be able to look back and realize I had met him with love, with caring, with respect. And I told him at one point, I said, I know everything, and I forgive you. And he didn't, he didn't respond. But I, when I got the news that he had passed away, I, I held on to the idea that at least in his last moment, maybe he thought of that. And if not, that's OK. The universe, as you know, is infinitely patient and is very prepared to give him another birth to work it all out again. And you know, whenever it's the right time, he'll experience it. So we keep recycling till we get it. Recycle till you say been there, done that. You know, you mentioned uh, all the different aspects of yoga, and uh, you used the word uh, yogasana. Now, I have been doing yoga practice for a very long time, and you know, in the beginning, actually, I was not an enthusiast, as enthusiastic about asana as I am now, because. For those of you who don't know, asana means seat of awareness, seat of consciousness. So every asana is actually a seat of consciousness, a seat of awareness. And yoga practiced correctly with dhyan, dharna, drishti, gaze, breath, focused awareness, pratyahara, is actually very healing. And it, it actually makes you even a bigger uh, enthusiast of, of the yamas, the niyamas, the dharna, the dhyan, the samadhi. But uh, I want to ask you a very important question right now. You know, as I look at you, you're at peace. You're the embodiment of equanimity. You express spontaneous joy, and you tap into your inner self. Is it possible? For a human being, irrespective of what is happening. See, what is happening right now, if you look at the world, uh, and if you're honest about it, you know, what do we have in the world right now? We have conflict, we have terrorism, we have gender inequality, we have racial inequality, uh, we have extreme poverty, we have an unsustainable planet. We have extinction of species. And um, we right now have pandemics all over. It doesn't look good out there, right? Is it possible to have this experience, joy, equanimity, peace, irrespective of what is happening? Can you start from joy no matter what? And do you have to go to the Himalayas to do it? I would say you have to go to the Himalayas in your heart, but not necessarily in your body. Because as long as we are anchored and rooted in the drama that is taking place around us, we're going to go up and down with it. As long as we're anchored into the external waves of the ocean, 
we're going to go up and down. It's great if you like surfing, but it gets tiring after some time. But if we're able to anchor ourselves deeply in that ocean, then even though there's waves on the surface, it's not that we have to stop the waves of the ocean so I can find peace. It's that you become able to anchor in the depths of it that the waves don't, don't disturb because my, my peace, my joy isn't rooted in or based upon decisions that other people are making, things that are happening in the external world. It's from that source within the self of joy, of love, whatever word we use for it, whether we say God or divinity or soul or spirit or consciousness, whatever word we use, its very nature is joy, is peace. And that in many ways actually is what I wrote the book for, was to help people realize, okay, my arc, my physical arc was Hollywood to the Himalayas. Literally, from Hollywood via Palo Alto and Stanford to the Himalayas. But the arc of changing how you think, that doesn't require a physical relocation. But it requires a shift from what I call the Hollywood way of thinking, which says you are your body, you're its size, its shape, its color, its race, its religion, its history, its relationships, its title, its bank account, which leads to suffering. Because then, of course, there's always greed and envy and sense of not enoughness and competition and a sense of lack and anger. And you shift it to the Himalayan way of thinking, which says you have a body, but actually you aren't it, as you shared so beautifully and gave that beautiful meditation of realizing we're not the body, not its size, not its shape, not the activity in the brain. We are that soul, we are that spirit. And that's something everyone can do. So however people are suffering, wherever they are, I, I so deeply hope that the, through the book, through my experiences, through the teachings as I learned them, that people will be able to make that shift from the Hollywood way of thinking of suffering to the Himalayan way of thinking of ending suffering. But very lastly, I wanted to just speak to something because all of that is critical so that we may be in peace and in joy and in truth, which is all of our collective highest dharma, to know the truth of who we are, to experience that divinity in ourself, as ourself. And we live here on planet Earth. And, I remember who be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we've been given a human body with emotions, 
with compassion, with initiative, with creativity, with a brain that immediately thinks, how can I fix, help, do, adjust? And I don't think God makes mistakes. And I think that if we've been given all that, we've been given it for a reason, and the reason is to serve and to act. So all of this is not we find peace and joy, and it doesn't matter what happens in the world. The peace and the joy is a prerequisite to actually being an effective and efficient instrument of service in the world. Because if I'm not anchored in my own truth, then it becomes all about ego. As Pooja Swamiji always says, between egos and logos, it's amazing that any organization or anybody ever gets anything done because that's all we're worried about is our egos and our logos. And so we have to be anchored within in order to be able to be those vehicles and vessels of action. But the hunger in the world, the strife in the world, the injustice in the world, the environmental destruction in the world. The answer to that is not how can I be in peace and let the world go to nothing. Let the world collapse, let people suffer. For me, it's how can I be in enough peace and anchored in truth and joy so that when I serve, I'm actually able to be connected to the intelligence of the universe, that intelligence that turns caterpillars into butterflies and makes seeds sprout into, into trees, that intelligence that's there of growth, of healing, of preservation, to be connected to that. And then to be able to have the open-hearted courage to be the vehicle and the vessel for it. Very, very insightful. What Sadhviji is talking about is karma yoga. Love in action. Um, love without action is meaningless. And action without love is irrelevant. But when you have love in action, then the whole wor world wants to support you. And you stop confusing yourself with your selfie, which is basically what you were saying, logos, <laughs> yes. logos and symbols. Your body is a symbol. Your mind is a symbol. Your ego identity is a symbol. At some point, we have to recognize that we are not symbols of reality. We are reality. So this brings me to my final question, which is very important right now. You know, you mentioned Hollywood is a very traumatized society right yeah. now. A lot of people are hurting. A lot of people have been hurt. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give yeah. uh, to those who have been victims of trauma? Where should they go in their heart right now? How do they seek peace and and ultimately resolution of their stories. Beautiful, thank you. I would begin, I think, where we ended the last question, 
that intersection, as you say, of love in action, that intersection of the awareness that I need to be in peace, I need to be in joy, I'm not my body, I'm not what's happened to it, and that I am supposed to use this body as a vehicle, as a vessel, as an instrument of service. So that intersection is where I would begin because I would say, yes, a lot of people have suffered in a lot of ways. And a lot of the ways that they've suffered have to do with the injustice in that world. Collective consciousness. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that needs to be changed in the same way that climate change needs to be abated, in the same way that we need to protect our trees, in the same way we need to deal with world hunger and all lack of human rights. So they need to serve. But before they can effectively serve, they need to actually realize they are not the ones who have been injured. The body may have been, the role may have been, but as you remind people over and over again, I've heard you in the past about how frequently the cells of our body regenerate and how we are not the same being. We were a few weeks, months, or years ago. And so to be aware that the me isn't the one who was hurt. To be aware that I must forgive, even though I must, after forgiveness, act to make sure it doesn't happen to others, nonetheless I must forgive so that I can be free. And to realize that they deserve to be free, regardless of what has happened to them. Another important piece that I would share lastly is People in Hollywood, actors, actresses, models, play a lot of roles, right? I mean, if you're a successful actor or actress, presumably you play a lot of different roles. Successful model, you're going to model a bunch of different things, different roles. But at the end of the day, they know that they aren't that role. So you've never heard of a villain in a TV show or a movie actually going home and murdering his family because he forgot that he wasn't the role. No matter what great actors they are, they know it's just a role, and they may get into it fully and completely. But at the end of the day, they don't go home and murder their family because they know, ah, that villain guy is just a role I play. And in the same way, if they could realize that there's another role. One role they're playing is the me who dons a costume and a mask and, or makeup and a script. And when I take that off, I recognize I am this body, these relationships. But to realize that's also a role. And actually there is another being who is simply wearing the costume of this size, shape, body, this color, this race, this religion, this history. 
these stories, this drama. And just as I'm not the villain or the damsel in distress or whoever I may be playing on the stage, and I'm able to wash off that makeup and take off those costumes, in the same way that's what I need my meditation for, is to wash off the other costumes. What Sadhviji is saying so beautifully is that it's our destiny to play an infinity of roles, but we're not the roles we play. We are the alert witnessing awareness in which these roles come and go. You know, a long time ago, Shakespeare, they've had men, women doing all these roles, and at the end, they all come, take a bow, and once we cultivate that witnessing awareness, we are both free of the roles we play, but we can do a better job. But that's what method acting is, actually. Anupam will know that. When you identify with the witness of the role you play, you can play it better, but you're also not affected by it. Uh, although some people are. I, I heard that when Ben Kingsley was playing Mahatma Gandhi, for a year he practiced celibacy stop smoking, drinking, etc. So he could fit into the role and then when it was over he get, became Ben Kingsley again. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's a true story but it's it's the myth anyway. Um, your book also contains teachings and tools and insights for people regardless of whether they go to the Himalayas or not. Can you give a peek into some of that? That'll be my last question. Sure. So much of what we've talked about tonight, everything we've talked about tonight in some way comes through the book. Because the book is what I've learned in the 25 years of being in India. I would say one critical piece that for me is a, a very simple, practicable anywhere takeaway from what it's taken me 25 years to learn is that your thoughts are vehicles and they take you places. And most of us think of our thoughts as something over which we have no control that it's just, it's there, and oh my God, what can I do? It's there. But they're actually vehicles, as you know so well and as you teach so well. And we have a great ability to control it. You know, we realize if my arms flailed all over the place like this, and I said, oh, Deepak Ji, don't worry, those are just my silly arms, they do that sometimes, people would think, she, she's sick. I mean, like, obviously, we should have our arms under our control. And yet our minds, most of us just say, oh, my silly mind, yeah, I don't have any control over it. My mind made me do this. My mind made me do that. My anger made me do this. My jealousy, my lust, my greed, my patterning made me do that. And in the same way that we learn to control our arms and our legs, 
we learn to control our minds through practices of meditation, of yoga, of introspection. And our thoughts are vehicles. And that, for me, has been so powerful because if you're standing, I always think about standing you know, at the gate of an airport, and before your plane comes, there's another plane there. And I just imagine the sign up there that says, you know, doors closing now, plane going to hell, right? Now, are you going to jump on it just because it's there? It's not going where you want to go. Or you're standing at a bus stop, and a bus slows down and stops and opens the door and you look up and it says, you know, the, the 192 destination hell. You're not going to get on it. And yet, when we have thoughts that arise of anger, of separation, of ego, they're taking us to, quite literally, an emotional, a psychological, a spiritual hell where we are literally burning in ourselves. But we jump on them because it's there. And to realize, oh my God, I've actually got a choice. Just because this thought form has arisen, just because the metaphoric bus has slowed down, doesn't mean I have to jump on it. Just like you could wave to the bus driver and say, you know, have a nice day, I'm not getting on. <laughs> In the same way, I can say to my thoughts when they arise of, pain or grudges or not enoughness or judgment or anger, any shame, anxiety, to be able to see them as these vehicles and to thank you so much for slowing down and stopping by, but I've got other plans today. And that power has been just such a gift. Sadhuji, this has been an extraordinary evening. We've learned a lot. I would like to summarize, actually, what we've learned from Sadhviji. Forgiveness is the way to peace. Everybody is doing the best they can from their state of awareness. We are not the roles we play. We are the alert witness of the roles we play. We can choose to go to heaven or hell because they are states of awareness more than anything else. And I'd like to leave everyone with... Uh, with something that every religious experience involves, because sadhvi is an example of religious experience. Religious experience is not religious ideology or religious institutions. So when you look at the Vedanta, they say that human beings have existential suffering for five reasons, or five kleshas, not knowing your true identity, grasp number one, not knowing your true identity. Number two, grasping and clinging at experience which is ephemeral, transient, impermanent, actually ungraspable. Every experience is ungraspable. You, you cannot hold on, even if you do try to. It'll only create stress. And the third is recoiling from experiences that are unpleasant. The fourth is identifying your self with your selfie or ego identity, which is a, a human construct. It's, it's a fictional self. It's not a real self. And the fifth is the fear of death. And this is the basis of all human suffering, the five kleshas. But Sadhvi had a religious experience. 
See, not somebody has a religious experience. Jesus has a religious experience. The Buddha has a re religious experience. What we, what do we do? We end up worshiping the person who had the experience instead of asking, "How could I have that experience myself?" You know. So, what is that experience which he had very clearly? And this is universal. It's not Christian. It's not Sufi. It's not Islam. It's not Buddhism. The first experience is she found herself. Not as body and mind, but the awareness in which body and mind are just a bunch of sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts. There's no body, actually. It's a human concept for intermittent sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions. So she transcended that identity, number one. Number two, the spontaneous emergence of truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, empathy, compassion, love, inaction, joy. And number three, the loss of the fear of death. Because death happens to experience, not to you, the real you is never born and never gone. And that's perfect example here. So very grateful to you, Sadhvi. We all want your experience. If somebody is pointing to the moon, you look at the moon, you don't worship the finger. Okay, so with that, I'd like to close. And I think uh, Puja Swamiji has uh, a blessing for both you and me. Oh, before we conclude, here's the book. You know, Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. A, a remarkable journey by Sadhvi Bhagwati Saraswati. Glory to you. Oh, Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotir Gamaya Mrityorama Amritam Gamaya
डॉक्टर श्री दीपक चोपड़ा जी रिस्पेक्टेड डियर साध्वी भगवती जी वेरी डियर श्री अनुपम खेर जी डियर जोनाथन माई ब्यूटिफुल सिस्टर्स and brothers it's so wonderful to have dr deepak chopra ji today with us all dr chopra i'm very proud of you that the way you have brought indian knowledge and wisdom for the people all over the world you had brought ayurveda and make it very cool you have made meditating very cool it's not easy in the western world bringing these terms and making people understand and then practiced and live that way of life but you made meditating very cool you made spirituality very cool and uh, it's so wonderful i can say proudly that you are a great ambassador of wisdom and true knowledge which is universal and you all over the world and you are touched and transformed millions on this earth sadhvi ji is very i can say has a great respect for you and whenever it just oh she has a great feeling and great respect about you i can go on and because time is very short last our dear sadhvi 25 years ago when she came she came to india defined with her by her past she came to india with chained by her past she was chained and defined i could see but she transformed herself story she has shared bit of it but you will go through the book you will see amazing story she could have gone and gone and it could go to 1000 pages but then because people have to take in their hands it should be not that bulky so she has to restrain herself to not write everything but you will see few stories which really will 
you will find this is my story. This is everybody's story. And since that moment, it's not easy coming from that family, having everything, all was set. Today, I can see that, sir, people have all set. This set, that set, I can take name and go on and on. Everything you find, you go for shopping, you buy so many things, you come back home, this antique wall is set here, this bathroom, bedroom, living room, kitchen room, every wall is set. In spite of your shelves are also full, but shelf is empty. Life is not set. That's what is all about in Sadhviji's book, how to be set. And spirituality makes you set. Dr. Chopra has brought this concept very clearly to the West. That how we can be set. Things can go up and down, but how not to go up and down. How to stay anchored. How to stay grounded. And Sadhviji, in this past 25 years, learned how to forgive the first lesson. Not easy. But forgiveness is the bangay which can relieve your pain immediately. Can quick fix your wound, not only yours, others also. She learned how to let go. And she learned how to serve. And she learned, if I don't forgive, I don't want to be in pieces. I want to be in peace. I don't want to stay in my life bitter. I have to become better every day. I have to check my balance sheet. How to take care of my balance sheet and that's the only way is when you forgive and be free. There is a freedom immediately. The freedom, the joy, the peace right there. I remember last in my jungle days, I was very young, Darsab, after receiving the touch of my master at home, one year of silence, he sent me to the forest. In that young age, so many lessons, so many things, the power of grace, how it works, but not to go on on those stories, but can tell you, it's not those stories of the jungle can work only in the jungle, in the Himalayas, in the mountains. Your Himalayas is right here. That's what the book is. The Hollywood to the Himalayas is not you have to go to the Himalayas to find your Himalayas. Your Himalayas is right here whether you live in the caves or in California, whether you go to the mountains or in Manhattan, it's right here. And you will learn all of that. And I'm so proud of her. She's a blessing. I see people come to our ashram from 150 countries, almost. And when they come, what she has learned, the secrets of the Himalayas, she shares with them. And I can see the impact on those people's lives. Tears in their eyes. 
and thank you thank you thank you sadhvi ji and then they leave and wonderful dr saab so proud of you so proud of you sachi aapne bahut diya is sansar ko bahut acche shawl can i have a shawl please as i mentioned in the beginning but those of you joining us online weren't able to see visually this is puja swami chidanand saraswati ji the head of parmarth nikatan ashram one of the most revered spiritual leaders in india and my my divine guru who has brought me into healing and transformation and everything this is our shri anupam kherji a very very renowned and beloved and respected global star of the screen of the stage of so much but using that power to really touch people in a very different way it's not just about entertainment it's about touch so I'll ask just before we leave Anupam ji to share to share a few words with us please you know after this uh, such an amazing and enlightening enlightening conversation between you and Deepak ji my survival instincts tell me that I should keep quiet <laughs> <laughs> but I'm expected to be intelligent uh, expected that burden is too much for me so today um, I'll use the Hindi Rashtra Day and speak in Hindi. I think in Hindi, it will be easier for me to convey my thoughts in Hindi. First of all, I must 
टेल यू दैट परमात्म निकेतन के बारे में मेरे दादाजी हर साल माई ग्रैंड फादर एवरी ईयर फॉर अवर ट्वेंटी फाइव ईयर्स यूज टू गो टू मंथ्स एंड द कॉन्वर्सेशन दैट बोथ ऑफ यू हैव टूडे एक्टर्स आर रेस्टलेस यू नो बट आई वॉज सो पीसफुल सिटिंग देयर एंड लिसनिंग टू दिस कॉन्वर्सेशन माई एजुकेशन केम फ्रॉम माई ग्रैंड पेरेंट्स स्टोरीज वी लिवड इन ए जॉइंट फैमिली माई ग्रैंड फादर ग्रैंड मदर अंकल्स आंट्स my grandfather used to say and he was also principal of a yoga teacher in kashmir uh, yoga institution in kashmir i have seen him whenever we wanted something from him he will say stand up on your head and ask for it <laughs> so that's how i learned shirshasan my name is shabasan exactly and then he also there are certain teachings um, we were all talking about consciousness and how to get be how to be peaceful my grandfather used to say don't go through a problem twice once by thinking about it once by going through it and my father gave me the best lesson about life and he said the easiest thing in the world is to make somebody happy and for me that was the biggest teaching of yoga i just want to make people happy so when you called up this morning my idea was to just make you happy by being here थैंक यू वेरी मच फॉर आस्किंग मी टू कम हेयर एंड गुरु जी आपसे तो मिलकर हमेशा ज्ञान ही बढ़ता है बहुत बहुत धन्यवाद जी आपके बारे में क्या बोलूँ मैं अब आप मतलब कभी कभी जो शांत रहना जो है उससे बड़ी बात उससे बड़ा ट्रिब्यूट कोई नहीं हो सकता है आई थिंक चुप रहना शब्दों को से बेटर होता है तो थैंक यू फॉर व्हाट यू हैव डन गुरुजी ने बहुत अच्छा समराइज किया उसको everybody's blessings on the book together wonderful what a a beautiful blessing it has been to to be together this evening